You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. While Francis Drake was on his voyage of circumnavigation around the globe, he had really no news of England or European politics. No news of the ever-heightened tensions between England and Spain. Now, he must have had some notion of this, since his piracy and raiding were directly responsible for most of Spain's complaints to Elizabeth. But, halfway around the globe, he had... No news. It was really impossible for him to hear anything of either the Queen of England or the many Catholic plots against her. When he finally sailed in to Plymouth Harbor in September 1580, his very first question was to ask after the Queen. He held a deep love for Elizabeth, and she appears to have trusted and respected him, but Francis Drake had no idea of how he would be received. Immediately after returning to England, he sent word to court of his return and his adventures, his trials, his exploits, and his treasure. Now, King Philip II of Spain and the Spanish ambassador in England, they demanded the return of all Spanish property stolen by Francis Drake. They had before them a restitution order. It had been drawn up for their eyes, and they argued bitterly over whether or not to sign it and appease the King of Spain. Now, some of these privy councillors argued that the treasure should be locked up in the Tower of London, perhaps along with Francis Drake, to await return to King Philip. Others, including Lords Leicester, Walsingham, and Hatton, well, they refused to sign this order. They were, after all, financial backers of Drake's voyage, and they stood to lose a fortune if the treasure were returned. Now, all this bickering was really ultimately pointless. These men were powerful and influential, but Elizabeth was queen. She sent personally a missive to Francis Drake, summoning him to court, asking that he please bring a sample of the treasure from his adventure. For six hours, the two met in a private council. Drake certainly reported about the trial and summary execution of a lord and commander on his voyage. He would have told her of his exploits in the Pacific, and not to be discounted, his many important geographic discoveries. His conquest of Nova Albion and his exploration of the potential western edge of the Northwest Passage. However, perhaps most notable to the Queen were the trade deals that Drake had struck between the English and the Molucca Islands. These ensured future profit and goods from the East Indies. This future income, not to mention the windfall of Spanish gold and silver, must have been a balm to Elizabeth. I imagine she told Drake this, as she described the dire situation in Europe. She would have told him of the Cold War in the Netherlands that was threatening ever to break out into a firefight. She would have told him, certainly, about the death of the King of France and the raising of the new king, Henry III, which 
didn't bode well for England, seeing as how Henry III was so closely tied to Mary, Queen of Scots. In addition to that, there were several plots on Elizabeth's life personally, as well as many Scottish plots to see her executed or overthrown. Beyond that, Ireland was a constant problem. The Spanish, French, and all the Catholic forces of Europe continued to use Ireland as a, a thorn in Elizabeth's side, fomenting rebellion there. There was a plot where not only were the local Irish Catholic lords rising up, they were funded and sometimes bolstered by soldiers from all around the Catholic European nations. Francis Drake had been gone for years, and his absence had been felt severely in England. While men with older names and greater titles were lords of the admiralty, it was to Francis Drake that Elizabeth turned again and again in her war with the Spanish. And after she had given him his rewards, she would send him back out onto the open ocean. This is episode number 13, The World is Not Enough. On April 1st, 1581, the Golden Hind, Francis Drake's ship, traveled to Detford for the Queen and all of London to see the ship that had traveled around the globe. The quay was filled with hundreds of onlookers, hoping to catch a glimpse of the captain that they all adored. Drake was not just a captain and not just a soldier, but he was really a celebrity in England. He was a man who was not unlike the common people, and he had been able to tell Philip exactly what he could do with his empire, with his pope, and with his ships. With the Golden Hind at anchor, Queen Elizabeth ascended the gangplank to view the Golden Hind, and the crowd thronged the plank after her, collapsing it and them into the mudflats below. The crowd laughed and cheered at the antics of these people trying to escape. Now they were unharmed, but they must have been covered in filth. The queen, who was ever the entertainer herself, lost one of her garters, which uh, a man who was gallant and dashing, the French ambassador, Monsieur de Marchmont, well, he collected it for her. In front of all of the onlookers, in fact, all of London, the queen raised her skirts to replace the garter, and she told Marchmont coyly that when she was done with it, she would give it to him as a gift. Now that the crowd had been awed by the ship, amused by these people's antics, and just a little bit titillated by the queen, it was time for formalities. Francis Drake kneeled before the queen, and she raised her gilded sword above her head, asking the audience if she should strike off Francis Drake's head. The crowd, of course, bellowed a resounding no. The queen bowed her head to them, passed her sword to Monsieur Marchmont, and asked him to perform the ceremony of knighthood on Francis Drake. She was going to need him. He was her new knight. He was her dragon. All of the things that she had told Francis Drake, be it the situation in the Netherlands, the rebellions in Scotland, the open rebellion in Ireland, or the many plots against Elizabeth's life, they were all backed by the Spanish. Be it financially, or with spies, or even with soldiers, the Spanish were behind everything. Spain was growing ever more powerful, too. While Francis Drake had been on his voyage in the year 1578, there was a battle on the shore of Morocco called the Battle of the Three Kings. There, King Sebastian of Portugal was killed. His elderly uncle, a deaf and blind old man named Cardinal Enrico, was raised to the throne. Now, it's arguable that he didn't have the best claim. In fact, both Catherine de' Medici and Philip II had more legitimate and better claims than him. However, Philip bided his time. He didn't want to be seen overthrowing an old man. And when the cardinal inevitably eventually died, Philip ordered the Iron Duke, the Duke of Alba, into Portugal. 
Now, most of the rural country in Portugal fell almost immediately, but Lisbon held out for their king, a man who was the bastard nephew of Cardinal Enrico, a man named Dom Antonio. Now, Antonio was not a legitimate claimant to the throne. However, really, Portugal had nobody else to put forward. The throne was likely to go to either a French woman or the Spanish king himself, and that was something the Portuguese just couldn't stomach, seeing a foreign monarch sitting on their throne, so they supported this man, Don Antonio, fiercely. In Lisbon, the fighting was urban fighting, soldiers with spears, arrows, and swords in the streets going home to home, killing anybody who stood against them. It was bloody, and it was violent, and it was terrible, but finally, the forces supporting Dom Antonio were defeated. And on September 12th, 1580, Philip II was named King of Portugal. He sent a letter to Alba thanking him, saying, quote, I don't know how to express the gratitude I owe you for this. End quote. Spain had been up until now the richest and the largest empire in the world. With the empire of Portugal added, with her possessions in Brazil, parts of Africa, and the greatest European holdings in Asia, Spain was now a truly global empire, the largest that the world had ever seen. After taking Lisbon, Philip found 12 very pleasing surprises. He found 12 brand new galleons ready to sail. The Portuguese galleon was really the greatest warship in the world, and these 12 had more guns, more men, and more sail than any other ships in Europe. With these, Philip could really crush the sea beggars. He could cripple this new English navy and, hopefully, reclaim the Mediterranean from the Turks. In land, in wealth, and now in naval power, they eclipsed England, France, and the Holy Roman Empire combined. They were now the world's only superpower, and Philip's eyes were trained directly on English shores. Now, he wanted to avoid open war with Elizabeth, but he supported every Catholic plot against her and her nation. But despite their superiority, Philip was quickly growing to be rivaled in naval power by the English. The Portuguese, who had become sort of allies with the English, had shared their design of the galleon with Elizabeth. John Hawkins, who was now the treasurer of the navy, had been tasked with building England's fleet up. He went to work constructing these Elizabethan ships, this version of the Portuguese galleon. Now, their first ship completed bore a name that would become forever a defining trait of the Royal Navy. They called that first galleon Dreadnought. By the time Francis Drake was back in England, they had completed several other ships, including the Revenge, the Scout, and work was progressing on even more English galleons. It's worth taking a second to look at exactly what a galleon is and why it is such a vast improvement on former English vessels like the Caravelle or even those ships like the Jesus of Lubbock, which had really massive fore-and-aft castles. If you picture those old-time medieval ships that have massive constructs on the back of them that look so imposing on the waves, well, that was what the old ships were like. And while they looked so domineering, they were really ungainly on the sea. These galleons, they had a smaller fore-and-aft castle, and they had a much longer keel relative to their width, which really made them extremely swift and very maneuverable. So in addition to the stability by shortening the fore-and-aft castles, they had been given a much longer keel, which really let them cut through the water, and almost more importantly to these warships, it gave them a whole lot more room for guns. Now while the Portuguese and the Spanish and the English and perhaps the French were all now building these galleons, it was really in those guns where the English excelled. 
For years, perhaps decades in Europe, it had been agreed by every navy that the only proper material to build a cannon out of was bronze. Bronze guns were far superior to their precursors, the iron guns, and both their weight, their durability, and the lack of probability to explode on deck and kill all of the men on board. They were able to take the concussions from these explosions much better. Bronze guns were extremely expensive, though, and they were difficult to produce. The Spanish and the Portuguese relied almost exclusively on the German foundries making these bronze guns. The English, unfortunately, were unable to buy any more of these bronze guns. Due to the war in the Netherlands, they had had their trade cut off primarily with the continent, so they had to do something radical to produce their own guns. So John Hawkins turned to an old source. All the way back in the reign of Henry VIII, the king had turned to the foundries in Sussex in England and told them to start working on producing new guns, not made of bronze, but made of cast iron. Now, this was agreed by all the navies to be inferior. However, he told them to develop a gun that could take these concussions and was less likely to break and also extremely maneuverable on board a ship. When John Hawkins turned to them, he found that while their guns were still inferior to the bronze guns, they were able to produce them much more safely than they had before and much more quickly and cheaply than anybody could produce bronze guns in Europe. These guns were lighter than their forebears, more maneuverable, and most importantly, capable of rolling from one side of a ship to the other. They were now built along extremely strict plans that were much more stable and less prone to destruction. These cast iron guns were all identical. All of the galleons they were building were also made by very specific plans that matched these new iron cannon. So you could fit so many of these guns on board that really... Well, they looked like monsters bristling with thorns. These new English galleons had more firepower than any other ships in Europe, all due to these improvements on the iron cannon. So the Queen and John Hawkins now had all of these brand new ships with brand new guns. And the question remained, though, what exactly to do with this new and powerful navy? The ships that were owned by Drake and the Hawkins family and the Winter family continued their activities in and around Europe, that being primarily the North Sea and the Channel, and in the West Indies. They would take prizes, they would take plunder, they would sack ships, and they would raid villages. But these were really nothing more than pinpricks to Spain's all-encompassing empire. They needed a true plan to showcase their naval might and to deal a real blow to King Philip of Spain, something that would make him stand up and take notice. This new navy was a big deal, and whatever their plan was going to be was discussed all around England. In lords' castles and tavern rooms, these armchair admirals would discuss exactly what should be done with this new navy. But the men who were really in charge of the navy, men like William Winter, John Hawkins, and Francis Drake, well, they came up with many plans, and some of these plans they even planned out meticulously, down to where they would get all of their materials from. However, again and again, these plans were vetoed by sometimes the Privy Council, but more frequently by Elizabeth. Her new navy was expensive, and she didn't want to see it wasted in some reckless naval action. She needed proof to be convinced that whatever their plan was, it would go off without a hitch. The first and most audacious of these plans, to at least be seriously considered by the Privy Council and Elizabeth, was brought to the Council by Sir Francis Drake. Now, Drake had befriended and made an ally of that Dom Antonio de Crado, that uh, dethroned and exiled king of Portugal. The plan that they had come up with together was to attack the Spanish treasure fleet at the Azores, which was really 
a Portuguese loyalist stronghold. However, now Philip was using it as it was now part of his empire. This was a means not only to rob the king of Spain of all of the riches in his treasure fleet, but also to take back that stronghold for Dom Antonio and perhaps lead a rebellion against the king of Spain. This would have stung him on two points very strongly, and it appealed to everyone in England, but it was imperfect for a number of reasons. First being that it was risky and potentially disastrous. Elizabeth wanted something that was less probable to failure. The second being that this would be an open declaration of war with Spain. It would be allying with this Portuguese king in a civil war for the throne, which was something that, as yet, Elizabeth was not ready to consider. So, Drake had other plans that he decided to bring to the attention of some of the more powerful men in England. This time, he went directly to the Earl of Leicester and pleaded with him for another mission. This was a voyage that Drake would plan and fund, but he would not actually lead himself. The plan was to go trade with that Sultan Babu in the East Indies that Drake had made that trade alliance with. The voyage was backed by Drake, and Lester got behind it as well. After those two, Walsingham, Hatton, and Admiral Lincoln all got on board. In addition, that Muscovy Company and many of the other corporations in London got on board as well. It was quickly fully funded. Any operation backed by such a list of people got a lot of support. However, Drake wouldn't be on board, and that absence... Well, it left sort of a power struggle to see who would actually lead this voyage. Drake had men that he thought would be best for it, but these were among his friends, people who were those rough West Country Englishmen that these nobles in London didn't think would be best for the voyage. Perhaps they should have listened to Drake in the long run, but eventually the captain of the voyage went down to a man named Edward Fenton. Now, Fenton was... A distinguished military man, however, most of his distinctions came from military actions on land. Really, he had almost no experience with the sea, which has proved in the past disastrous. And in the fleet that Drake was putting together, it showed. When Drake went to survey the ships, he found that every ship was light on tackle and wine, and so he appointed several of his own trusted marines to supervise the provision of these ships. Now, the council had gone over Drake's head to appoint Fenton, but Drake had every confidence that his own men who were on board each of these ships would see that the voyage went well and would return with a wealthy and resounding success. The voyage was a disaster. Almost immediately, Fenton found himself alienated from the more seasoned sailors and in the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. Well, he began to lose his mind. His men on board demanded that the fleet sail west rather than east to go back to the Strait of Magellan and plunder Peru as Drake had done a year before. Fenton, who had quickly lost complete control of the men on board these ships, had really no command left, so he acquiesced to it. And when they reached Brazil after sailing west, well, it showed why a wise and competent commander like Francis Drake really was vital to a mission like this. The fleet attacked the very first Spanish ships that they came in contact with, three of them, and one of them they wound up sinking. So immediately, all of the ports in the region closed up shop and defended themselves with whatever guns and ships they had available. Now Francis Drake, while he may have taken certain ships, he wouldn't have sunk them, and he wouldn't have sunk the first ships he encountered. He would choose his prizes much more wisely. 
So the fleet was forced to fled back east, penniless, destitute, and Fenton, well, he raged at the men on board, and he demanded that they take the island of St. Helena, and also demanded that they name him King. He told the men that they could plunder every ship traveling to and fro the Cape of Good Hope, and they could build themselves a paradise. They didn't. The fleet returned to England. They were smaller, and they were broken, and one of Drake's brothers, John Drake, had been left behind, never to be seen again. The mission was a disaster. The captain, that king of St. Helena, well, he was ushered into retirement quietly. Elizabeth seethed in court. In the thirteen months that the doomed voyage had been gone, Philip had crushed the fleet of ships loyal to Dom Antonio in the Azores. Now, this wasn't the English Navy, but these were allies to Elizabeth. And that wasn't the end of the bad news. William of Orange had been assassinated. The Duke of Parma in the Netherlands, who had taken the place of the Iron Duke, was even more merciless than Alba had been, and Dutch independence was faltering. Elizabeth turned to Sir Walter Raleigh, who was her new favorite at court. She had given him the nickname Water, as she realized that she couldn't live without either of them. She asked him to found an American settlement at Roanoke, which was something that Raleigh and his brothers were eager to do. Now, as that settlement wasn't getting off to the best start, Elizabeth was forced to turn, once again, to her most powerful weapon. She planned to unleash her dragon. Now, Drake's plan hadn't worked out, but he hadn't been at the helm, so John Hawkins brought a plan that he had mentioned to Elizabeth before. He brought it back to her. This was a plan, simply, to go back to the West Indies and continue raiding. Now, he was fresh off a voyage that his family had been involved in that had gone extremely well, but that wasn't an official royal naval voyage. A document from November 1584 shows the Queen, Sir Francis Drake, John and William Hawkins, and the Lords Lester, Raleigh, and Hatton planning a voyage. Now, it was possible that they were planning a voyage to the Moluccas. This was something that hadn't happened on the last voyage because Fenton had lost control of the crew. However, this voyage would not be so small. This would have 11 large ships, at least four barks and 11 pinnaces, carrying at least 1,600 men. This was going to be an official English naval fleet, the largest ever commissioned by the Queen, and there was only really one choice for Admiral. On Christmas Eve, 1584, Sir Francis Drake was named Admiral of the English fleet. Now, only a few days later, on December 31st, Philip II of Spain and the French royal family signed what is called the Treaty of Joinville, forming the European Catholic League against the Protestant forces of Elizabeth and the Netherlands and the French Huguenot forces. Now, Philip was nervous about Elizabeth's intentions and the rumors of her amassed fleet. Since the Spanish ambassador, Mendoza, had been exiled in England, news was unreliable, and he wanted as strong an alliance in Europe as possible. Now that ambassador, who was in exile in Paris, did get occasional word of what was happening in England, and he sent Philip word of the amassing fleet, which was a confirmation of Philip's worst fears. Now, in only a few days' time, Philip received another message, this time from the Duke of Parma in the Low Countries, informing him that the English had cut off all trade with the Spanish Netherlands. The signs were clear that Elizabeth was no longer playing games with Spain. 
Now, Philip's highest military officials urged him to act. Both the Iron Duke of Alba and the Admiral Santa Cruz pushed for open war with England. They encouraged him to take their ships, destroy Drake and his fleet, and invade English shores immediately. But Philip hesitated. Open war could still be a disaster, and Philip still had cards up his sleeve. I'd like to read a passage from historian Susan Ronald. Quote, Balabo, Spain, 6 p.m., Wednesday, May 26, 1585. Master Foster gazed upon Balabo Harbor, feasting his eyes on the fine sight of so many Londoners that had heeded the King of Spain's call for help. Philip II had invited English merchants to send cargoes of corn and assured the Queen's Majesty that her people would have his very own assurance of safe conduct in these troubled times. Payment for the corn would be made by bills of exchange payable to the city of London and Antwerp at fair market prices. And so, the Primrose, a 150-ton Londoner, had been stocked with nearly 20 tons of corn and several ells of broadcloth and set sail for Balabo in Biscay. Master Foster had heard that the country was starving that the whole of Iberia had had a harsh winter, though the master of the Primrose and his men could be no firm judges of that fact for themselves. Balabo had been bathed in warm sunshine for the past two days in port, and the Spaniards they had seen appeared to have been well-fed. Indeed, as Foster took in the near-idyllic scene with the sun low in the sky, its rays reflecting lazily on the bay, Balabo seemed a welcoming voice on the wind as she had always been. It was then that he noted the soft groan of his rigging. A fine southwesterly was stirring. Foster prayed it would still be blowing the following day when they would weigh anchor and head for home. He hunched over the rail of his ship, leaning heavily on his arms, and looked on as a number of sleek Spanish pinnaces darted between his fellow Londoners. It was one of those rare moments of leisure for the captain of an English merchantman. Perhaps that was why he did not spy the pinnace heading for the primrose. When the watch called out the approach of the Spanish vessel, and that there were seven souls aboard, Foster awoke from his reverie and barked his orders to the crew, alerting them that a small party wished to board. What the devil could they want this time of evening? The Primrose's cargoes had been unladen. It was most unusual for the Spanish merchants to settle their bills of exchange at this time of day. Further, the master of the Primrose had already settled the matter of loading the Spanish wines for the return voyage the following day. It was a wary Foster who greeted the Corriador of Biscay. The hale and hearty fellow presented Foster to the six other men as Biscayan merchants and claimed that they wished to give him a small token of their esteem. They had brought a hamper full of fresh cherries as a gift, a favorite of the English queen, or so they had understood. Master Foster thanked them and ordered that beef, biscuit, and beer be brought to the impromptu gathering in his cabin. Yet, before they sat down to eat, four of the Biscayan merchants made their excuses and announced their intention to return to the shore aboard the Spanish pinnace. This lack of common civility made Foster truly smell danger. He ordered his first mate to accompany the Spaniards back on deck, simultaneously giving him the signal that all was not as it should be. It was a well-rehearsed exercise for English merchantmen in foreign waters, and the first mate knew how to alert the crew in secret to be ready for an assault. The master of the Primrose returned to his unwanted guests, laughing and joking with them in broken Spanish and English, noting all the while through the porthole the pinks and oranges of the setting sun, wondering undoubtedly if it would be his last sunset. After some fifteen minutes, the watch called out again that the pinnace had returned, carrying more than twenty men, and that a larger vessel with perhaps as many as seventy merchants also followed. Foster silently prayed that God would be English this day. 
The master bade the Corridor and his men to return to deck to greet the ships, expecting the worst. They were, after all, only twenty-six men against some ninety or more Spaniards. He could only imagine that these Biscayan merchants meant to board the Primrose, capture the crew, and, at best, imprison them all. Many a merchant man had been imprisoned before them, and most had fallen foul of the Inquisition. It was a destiny that he could not wish upon his enemies. Once above deck, Foster's suspicions were confirmed. Turning to the magistrate and his two friends, he said that he could not allow such a group of men to board his small ship, and the Corridor nodded compliantly. Yet, before Foster could give his crew the final signal to repulse an attack, he heard the beat of the battle drums from the Spanish ship below, and the unmistakable sound of their swords being unsheathed. The thud of the grappling irons and the roar of the Biscayans wrestling alongside the Primrose to board her by force drowned out his orders to his men. The Corridor and his merchants seized Foster with daggers drawn at his throat and cried out above the shouts of the melee, Yield yourself, for you are the king's prisoner. Foster narrowed his eyes and bellowed back, We are betrayed! The crew of the Primrose had fortunately taken the defensive measures that her master had laid down for circumstances such as these. Within seconds, five calaviers were fired through the grates from below decks at the Spanish scuffling above. There were screams from those Biscayans who had legs blown off and shouts to abandon their action from the others. They could not know it, but it was the only gunpowder and shot that the Primrose had on board, but the few seconds of confusion the blast created was enough to turn the tide. Foster prized himself loose from his captors and gave the order to fight to the death. Many of the Biscayans fled back to the boarding vessels, fearing that they would be blown to smithereens, as several of their number had been seconds before. Others stood their ground. Hand-to-hand battle broke out, and the well-practiced English drill of a skirmish at sea ensued. The English, knowing that if they were forced from the ship, they would die a thousand slow deaths, fought like demons possessed with boar spears and lances which whipped through two to three Spaniards at a stroke. Yet, despite the heavy carnage on the Spanish side, the outcome of the battle remained in doubt for a time. The only certainty to Foster and his men was that the deck of the Primrose was stained red with the blood of the Spaniards and Englishmen. The fighting raged on for another half an hour, with many Spanish Biscayans butchered, flung overboard, or drowned before the English could claim victory. Amazingly, only one Englishman, John Tristam, had been killed. Six other members of the crew were injured, but Foster thought that they would survive their wounds. He had to presume that his two men, John Burrell and John Broadbank, who had delivered the last of the corn cargo, had been taken into custody ashore. While the master and his crew made ready to set sail, Foster was perplexed why the Biscayan merchants who had escaped in the pinnaces did not bring reinforcements. He could not understand, at the moment of his own victory, why no armed relief for the Corridor had come. While he decided what should be done with the unfortunates struggling for their lives in the bay, Foster looked out across the harbor for the first time since the assault. All the other Londoners had the King of Spain's flag flying high on their masts. The Spanish treachery was now clear. The English ships had been lured into Spanish harbors for Philip II to confiscate in a master piratical act and leave England helpless. End quote. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Some of us love history. 
Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. I understand that that was a very long quote, but despite my best efforts, I couldn't find a better way to tell that tale than Susan Ronald did. Her book, The Pirate Queen, which we have used frequently on this show, is really spectacular. She's got a true gift for narrative. She's able to tell the stories of real history in a way that is extremely readable. Her stories are really a page-turner. If you're interested in this period, I really recommend picking one of her books up. So the Spanish had betrayed the English and taken an entire fleet and their crews hostage. Luckily, the Primrose was able to escape, the only ship in the fleet that was able to do so. Perhaps even more luckily, they still had on board those two agents of the King of Spain. Under what I imagine was a fairly unpleasant questioning, they sang and they told everything they knew of King Philip's plans. More to the point, they had in their possession, both of them, direct written orders signed by the King of Spain telling exactly what was going to happen and giving undeniable proof of what had happened in the Bay at Biscay. This was exactly what Elizabeth needed. On July 1st, Elizabeth signed a decree granting Francis Drake and any English merchant who had suffered from the seizure of their ships the right of reprisal. Now, this wasn't a declaration of open war, but it was almost as good. It gave huge numbers of English sailors leave to attack Spanish shipping, or goods on land, anywhere in Spanish territory. It was free license to plunder at will. In addition, Elizabeth signed the Treaty of Nonsuch with the Netherlands. She agreed to send almost 7,000 troops and 1,000 cavalry to relieve the besieged city of Antwerp. There was also financial aid as well, amounting to almost a full quarter of all of the Netherlands' wartime costs. In return, Elizabeth was granted use of and dominion over the ports at Denbril and Flushing. These were strategic staging grounds against the Spanish. Then... She gave Sir Francis Drake his orders, and she sent him to war. The seizure of the English ships on the Bay of Biscay at Galicia had changed everything. The English were forced to rush their timetable, and as preparations for the original plan to raid the West Indies were still incomplete, the fleet was understocked and underprepared. Still, Drake elected to leave with the entire fleet. His orders were to sail for the Galician coast, to free the imprisoned English, to take back their vessels, and to deliver a return blow to King Philip. After those orders were completed, Sir Francis intended to continue on with the plan to the West Indies and attack. The Earl of Leicester approved. He wrote, quote, 
That is the string that toucheth Philip indeed, for while his riches to the Indies continue, he thinketh he will be able with them to weary out all other parties, and I know by good means that he more feareth this action of Sir Francis than he ever did anything that hath been attempted against him. End quote. It was on September 14, 1585, that the largest royal naval fleet ever to set sail from English shores left port. The vessels included such illustrious names as the Elizabeth Bonaventure, the Aid, the Talbot Bark, the Galleon Lester, the Sea Dragon, the White Lion, the Bark Bond, the Hope, the Bark Hawkins, the Galleon Duck, the Bark Bonner, the Thomas Drake, the Francis, the Elizabeth Drake, the Tiger, and the Primrose. They were captained by such illustrious names as Francis Drake, Edward Winter, William Hawkins, and Martin Frobisher, among many others. Now, there was some controversy over who exactly was going to be captaining some of these ships. Drake had very particular ideas on who these men should be. Considering the last voyage he had planned had ended in such a disaster because of the meddling of English lords, he left in quite a rush. He wanted to leave some of these captains behind, and he needed to avoid any chance that Elizabeth might send a message to call him back to port. Now, in the rush, the fleet left more than half of their victuals, their food, behind. So, all of the captains were, at first, without orders, or really a rough outline at all of what the plan was. So, after sailing into the channel, and getting away from Elizabeth's potential messengers, Drake called a halt and called all of his captains in to have a meeting. All of the captains gathered aboard the Elizabeth Bonaventure, the ship that Drake captained, and they discussed exactly what was going to happen from there on out. The very first issue that everybody had on mind was the lack of food, and Francis Drake had plans to address this. He believed that they had enough food on board to get them to Spain, where they could restock any provisions they needed. While this meeting of the sea captains was taking place, Philip of Spain received his very first news of the English fleet. His spies told him that the fleet was anchored off the Isle of Wight, which, in fact, they weren't, but he did know that they were in the Channel. Drake discovered something at this meeting, too. He discovered that he really didn't care for this sort of large command. In the past, he had been little more than a pirate captain, commanding a very small fleet of fiercely loyal men. Now he was a royal admiral, forced to confer with at least a dozen other proud and powerful noblemen before coming to any decision. He felt hindered by this rather than empowered. Now, back in England, Drake was known as Sir Francis Drake the Fortunate, and his luck on this voyage seemed to hold as well. They happened upon a Spanish vessel carrying fish, wine, and the usual other victuals. This vessel would keep the men fed and happy at least until they reached the coast of Spain. On the 27th of September, the fleet set anchor at the mouth of the Vigo River near Bayona, Spain. Drake sent one of the most important men in the fleet, the on-land military commander named Christopher Carlyle, with a force of soldiers. They were to take a number of pinnaces and land at Bayona. This fleet of pinnaces was met in the river by the Spanish governor, and in their boats these two men conferred. Drake had sent Carlyle with one question, one request, and one demand. His question, is Spain at war with England? Now, this might sound like bravado or posturing on Drake's part, but it was likely a legitimate question. With the Spanish ambassador in exile, it's possible that Spain had declared war on England without notifying the English of it. But the governor replied that no, they were not at war. So then came the demand. Release all English captives and English ships, or face the full might of the fleet's guns and armies. 
The governor allowed that the terms could be met, but he would need to speak with Sir Francis Drake directly. And then the request. Allow us to trade for supplies until we are well stocked, and we will leave Spain in our wake forever. It was framed as a request, but the threat was really clear. Allow us to trade, or we will bring down the full might of our fleet upon you and take your town and everything within it. The governor, though, tarried on this point. Trading with the English was very frowned upon by the Spanish authorities. He did, however, allow that since he was unsure whether or not he could grant this request, he would go ahead and release all of the English prisoners. Now, when Drake came ashore, he wanted first to meet with these sea captains and see that they had been actually released and see exactly what it had been like in the Spanish hands. Now that their freedom was secured, he sent his men to Bayona. They entered the town, and for one night they plundered, pillaged, and pilfered without hindrance. Churches were desecrated or destroyed, homes were entered and ransacked, and taverns were certainly emptied of all their food and drink. However, for all the destruction, it appears that rape and murder were kept in check. Drake intended to scare them, not to galvanize the town against him. And it appears to have worked. The next day, he met with the governor, and they agreed that trade could proceed peaceably with the English. Now, the plunder had only amassed to about 6,000 ducats, most of which was quickly traded back to the local merchants for food and victuals. For some reason, though, the fleet waited at anchor. Perhaps they needed repairs to some of their vessels. A storm had hit while they were in the harbor. Perhaps some of the other captains believed that they were not still provisioned well enough to travel west across the Atlantic Ocean. Or perhaps there were other reasons. Drake did have other plans that he hadn't exactly told all of the captains about. Whatever the reason was, though, it cost the fleet. Their primary target on this voyage, aside from freeing the English, was to take the Spanish treasure flota. They knew that it was coming, and they had plans to take it. And the bay at Biscay, where they stayed, may have been a perfect place to wait. Unfortunately, while they dallied at anchor, the Spanish treasure fleet passed by just over the horizon, completely oblivious to the English presence. This fleet carried millions of dollars in Spanish silver, and it passed less than 12 hours away from their grasp. It appears that they had been waiting for it on the coast of Galicia, and it's unclear exactly why they waited so long. It's likely that it was in fact a simple mistake. The Spanish and most of Catholic Europe had recently transitioned over to the Gregorian calendar, while the English and the other Protestant nations refused to transfer over to something that Pope Gregory was enacting. So the English were still ten days behind the Spanish, and they would be for years and years to come. It's possible that whatever news Francis Drake had about the Spanish treasure fleet was in fact correct, but he was ten days behind on his calendar from the Spanish. Regardless, this was a blow to the sailors when they learned just how close they had been to being rich men. So in mid-October, they left the coast of Spain and sailed for the Canary Islands and then on to the Cape Verde Islands where they arrived at the island of Palma on November 2nd. The fleet immediately began taking fire from the fort. According to an anonymous sailor who left a journal on board, quote, 
The first shot was made at our admirable, which went fair over. The second being likewise shot at her stake atwixt our general's legs, standing his galley with Captain Frobisher and C. Carlyle of the Captain George, and the other, the splinters of a plank where they stood, hurt George a little, but there was no more hurt done by it, it being a minion shot. End quote. What he's saying here is that this cannonball passed between Drake's legs while he was pacing on board with the other captains, and this has gone down in Drake's legend as a symbol of his luck and fearlessness in battle. However, the resistance from the island fort was too much for the English to bear, so they turned tail and ran. They raided all throughout the Cape Verde Islands, but they found really little or no plunder, and still even less food, water, or wood. Their last landfall on the islands at Sao Tiago, several men visited a local curiosity, something they didn't see back in London, the hospital there. These men were impressed by the cleanliness and order, but they spoke of the twenty or so suffering inside from, quote, foul and filthy diseases, end quote. Five days after sailing away from Santiago into the Atlantic, these foul and filthy diseases began to race throughout the crews of every vessel in the fleet. For the two weeks of the crossing of the Atlantic, this plague decimated the men. Every vessel reported at least two or three deaths per day. It finally passed two or three hundred men, as many as five hundred, according to the Spanish records, dead. Many more were permanently disabled by this illness. Upon reaching the Caribbean at the island of Dominica, Drake sent all of the sick men on board ashore, ostensibly so that the climate could help them heal, and he sailed away to the northwest. It was on New Year's Eve, 1585, when the fleet arrived at Santo Domingo on the island of Española. On New Year's Day, the town was theirs. Santo Domingo was a city that had a rich past in the Caribbean, and it had been one of the most prominent early settlements of the Spanish. It was a capital and a trading hub that had paved streets lined with tall, whitewashed mansions, peppered by statues and fountains. Drake and his men expected a fantastic hall, but the luster of Santo Domingo had begun to fade. The trade and prosperity of the town had dried up in the last years, and despite the English having free reign in the town for days, they found almost no booty. So, in frustration, Francis Drake ordered captives taken in the town, and he attempted to ransom the city for a full million ducats. When the sheriff of the region countered that so much money simply did not exist in his jurisdiction, Drake began to burn the town down, one building at a time. In the end, they left Santo Domingo with merely 25,000 ducats, a very paltry sum compared to what he believed the town was worth. After the fact, when the exploits of this raid were to be published about a year later in England, the events were enhanced in glory and valor, but only two of the mentions in that appear to be at least confirmed by the Spanish. Now first, the English despoiled every church, abbey, or convent they found. From that same anonymous sailor's journal, quote, At our coming to the town's end, we burnt an abbey in which lay an old friar dead, who was killed by some of the soldiers which were disorderly. End quote. The second of these events, confirmed by the Spanish, occurred in a local Audencia building, kind of a town hall, where Drake found and removed a shield bearing a motto in Latin. It said, Non sufficit orbis. 
Drake asked the local leaders to translate this message, but they lowered their eyes, embarrassed to do so, and being fearful, they declined. However, one man did speak Latin and did translate for them. The shield held the banner of King Philip II of Spain, and it said his words, The world is not enough. Drake resolved to return this item to the queen, proof of Philip's, quote, proud and unreasonable reaching vein of his, end quote. The governor of the town wrote back to Philip of Spain, describing Sir Francis Drake, El Drake, to him. He wrote, quote, Drake is a man of medium stature, blonde, rather heavy than slender, merry, careful. He commands and governs imperiously. He is feared and obeyed by his men. He punishes resolutely, sharp, relentless, well-spoken, inclined to liberality and to ambition, vainglorious, boastful, not very cruel. End quote. Back in Spain, Philip received word of this attack on his home shores, on his islands, and his New World possessions. He contacted the Duke of Parma, and he asked him formally to draw up plans for the invasion of England. The talk in every inn, household, and royal court in Europe, though, was still of Sir Francis Drake and his raid on the West Indies. The reports were nearly always exaggerated. Drake had taken Havana, conquered Cuba, freed 200,000 slaves, or, on the other hand, Drake had been killed in battle and soundly defeated. Now, while these rumors were inflated, they did hold a nugget of truth. Drake had not sacked Havana, however, he had considered it. And he did free slaves, but not nearly 200,000. Among the slaves he did free, some of them went to join their brothers in the wilderness, while still more joined up with Drake's crew, intending to take revenge upon the Spanish. Now, while the cash prize that he had taken had been so small, ransoming one of the oldest and most prestigious colonial possessions of Spain was, it was a symbol of English strength against Spain. And instead of taking Havana and going towards Cuba, Drake elected to go south towards the Spanish mainland and the port at Cartagena. As the fleet neared the port, Drake landed a force of about 1,000 seasoned, armed, and armored troops under that man, Christopher Carlyle, about four miles up the beach from Cartagena. His fleet sailed near to the well-defended port there. They suffered a lot of withering fire from the fort. There was a chain barricade across the port as well, and two galleys in the harbor uh, holding them back, firing at them. Now, Drake's guns fired relentlessly, drawing all eyes from the town. They didn't really do much damage, but everybody was paying attention to the fleet and harbor. While he was unable to breach the defenses, it's doubtful that that was actually his purpose. Because while Cartagena looked on at the battle in the harbor, those 1,000 Englishmen marched into town. The only resistance that Carlyle faced were some poisoned stakes that were blocking the path that were easily avoided, and an amateurish ambush by citizens of the town, not even trained soldiers. There were attacks from the trees and from the city walls by some natives that were allied to the Spanish, but their arrows just bounced harmlessly off the English armor, so there really weren't any impediment at all. When the town had fallen and Carlyle sent word to him, Francis Drake focused all of his fire on the fort, bombarding it from sunup until sundown. After the sun set, every soldier manning the gun batteries fled in the night. The English took minimal casualties in taking Cartagena, but still, the plague continued to rip through them. 
The Spanish spoke of, quote, boatloads of English dead, end quote, and said that the English were burying their dead in secret to hide how reduced their numbers were. Much like at Santo Domingo, Drake entered into negotiations to ransom the town back to the Spanish. This time, he didn't expect as much. He demanded only 500,000 ducats, and that offer was summarily rebuffed. The local bishop, who was in on the negotiations, called Drake a pirate, at which point Drake flew into a rage. He insulted the bishop's pope and his king. The negotiations faltered. Drake once again set to burning the town piece by piece, culminating in one of his ship's cannons being fired at their newly completed cathedral. It hit one of the arches that was a support to the rest of the cathedral and toppled the entire structure to the ground. Finally, the town agreed that they would give Drake 107,000 ducats to make the English leave, which Drake accepted. In both of these attacks on Santo Domingo and Cartagena, the records of the Spanish don't indicate that the English were as violent as one might expect when taking a town. They, of course, call Drake a pirate and a villain, which he was, but they also call him a gentleman and an honorable man. Now, yes, the English burned and looted, but as I said before, they didn't murder or rape. They warned the locals in advance before they burned their homes or their buildings. Drake even went so far as to befriend a man in whose home he was staying. Drake, when he found out that the man's wife had died, gave his wife a funeral with full honors. He had his own men dig her grave. They raised the Spanish flag, and he had his soldiers beat their muffled drums. There was a real respect that grew between this Spanish man and Sir Francis Drake, which showed because when Drake finally left Cartagena, he demanded only 5,000 ducats from the man instead of his regular 6,000 because he had been such a hospitable host. From Cartagena, the fleet sailed north. They went on to Cuba, took on some wood and water, and continued on, sailing north to St. Augustine. Drake called his war council together, and they decided that the fort at St. Augustine, and especially the watchtower there, were a serious threat to the English settlement at Roanoke, and they opened fire on it. For two days, the cannons rang until the men manning St. Augustine's defenses retreated. The fleet, the men on it at least, were weary of what had been happening. They didn't want to spend a long time in port ransoming a town, so they decided to go into St. Augustine and see what was there. Luckily, the soldiers defending the fort had left in such a hurry that they had failed to secure the thousands of pounds stored in the fort for safekeeping. The fleet moved on to Roanoke, where they delivered some supplies and news, and then they sailed back to England. Back in Spain, Philip raged. This devilish pirate, this dragon, had burned his cities, insulted him personally, and stolen his gold. In the Low Countries, this heretic Queen Elizabeth had installed her former lover, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, as the de facto king. Had his assassination of William of Orange been completely for naught? In France, Henry of Navarre, a Protestant, seemed ready to take the French throne. And on the British Isles, that heretic Queen Elizabeth executed his strongest Catholic ally there. She beheaded Mary, Queen of Scots. Everything appeared to be slipping away from Philip. So he called once again for his military leaders, and he ordered plans for invasion to be sped up. The Pope, intending to help, published a papal bull condemning Elizabeth once again. 
This bull ordered all church proceeds taken in Spain and Portugal to go directly into the coffers of Philip and presented a lineage from Edward III, the King of England, which named Philip the rightful Catholic ruler of the English and the English throne. In preparation to help Philip take that throne, the Lords Parma and Santa Cruz gathered ships into one of the largest gatherings ever seen. Unfortunately, when they returned to England, the news that Francis Drake and the other captains brought back was not good, especially for the families of all of those lost on the voyage. The sailors had lost at least 40% of their number due to that horrible sickness that tore through them. It was a failure in other ways as well, a financial failure especially. The crown had had to come in and cover the shortfall to pay the soldiers and sailors their full wage because they had not made enough money on that voyage. Despite this ill news, though, the queen was not entirely displeased. Her ships were still in good repair, none of them had been lost, and back home to guard the English shores, which is exactly where Elizabeth wanted them. And they had freed those English vessels and their crews and dealt that severe blow to King Philip. That blow was really taking its toll on Philip, who lay in bed, tormented both by the physical ailment he had gout, but also by the psychological stress of what he saw as losing a war and perhaps losing the favor of his god. For a time, Drake was sent to Holland to give aid to the Dutch there, but quickly he was recalled. His plans to once again sail west and raid the Indies had to be put on hold. That amassing of ships... Well, that was the worst-kept secret in all of Europe. Everybody knew that they were gathering a massive armada for the invasion of England. Once again, Elizabeth turned to Drake. The navy, the English navy, was busy building as many ships as possible. They were amassing cannon and crews while the Winters and the Hawkins family constantly patrolled the English Channel. And Elizabeth turned to Drake and told him to gather his fleet. Once again, Drake was going to command from the ship the Elizabeth Bonaventure. The crown also granted the fleet the ships the Golden Lion, the Rainbow, and the Dreadnought. They had a full complement of soldiers and cannon on board. This new fleet was supplemented by Drake and some of the other West Country investors. They had ships like the Drake, the Thomas, the White Lion, the Hawkins, the Elizabeth, the Edward Bonaventure, and the Minion, along with a host of smaller yet still armed vessels and pinnaces. Back in Plymouth, Drake had some trouble finding enough men to crew these ships, though. At the last minute, hundreds of the men who had agreed to go on board deserted, wary of Drake's dangerous ventures and the shadow cast by his last outing. Sailors can be a superstitious lot, and so many had died on Drake's last voyage that this one was avoided by a lot of men. This angered Drake, and he sent a missive to the Crown asking that any of the men who had deserted this voyage be arrested. The queen declined to send her sheriffs to arrest them, but she did send soldiers to fill the crews, and on April 2nd, 1587, the fleet departed. It appears that the Privy Council sent some last-minute orders to Francis Drake. Quote, You shall forbear to enter forcibly into any of the said king's ports or havens, or to offer violence to any of his towns or shipping within harboring, or do any act of hostility upon the land. End quote. However, this command, for some reason, never seemed to reach Sir Francis Drake. On April 19th, near midday, the fleet anchored just off the Spanish coast. 
They waited near the port at Cadiz, which was a busy and well-defended harbor that was connected by river directly to the city of Seville. Drake called his captains in for conference. All along the Spanish and Portuguese coast, the Armada was gathering, but especially here. As yet, the ships from the farthest reaches of Spain's empire had not reached them, and all of the ships in port still lay at anchor. Nearly all of these ships were unmanned, and only a few merchant vessels were actually under sail, bringing necessary goods from ship to ship in the harbor to prepare for the invasion. Drake, against the wishes of many of the captains, ordered an immediate attack. At about five o'clock that evening, the English sailed toward the harbor. At first, the Spanish there assumed that it was the returning fleet of a friendly Spanish captain, and they sent a delegation to greet him. Drake, though, quickly dispatched them of this notion. He opened fire on the vessels. A couple of them were sunk, and the rest of them retreated to defend the harbor. Now, the Spanish galleys' guns, these smaller vessels, were no match for these English galleons, who fired well out of the Spanish range. The English sunk those two manned vessels, and still not properly actually in the harbor there, well, they took a 1,000-ton merchantman, and then a 700-ton Biscayan galleon. They took five smaller merchant vessels, and then they took a galleon owned by Santa Cruz, the Spanish admiral himself. When these eight ships had been fully ransacked and robbed of all of the valuables on board, including the victuals and wine, they were set ablaze and cut adrift. Throughout the night, then, the fort and the towers fired at Drake's fleet, and whatever ships could be manned set their guns to fire against the English. However, it was really a poorly organized and ineffectual defense. The uh, duke, a man named Medina Sidonia, uh, led reinforcements into the town. He had a contingent of both foot soldiers and cavalry, but they were unable to stop Drake from entering the harbor. All they could do was stop Francis Drake from entering the town, landing his men ashore, and taking the town there. At dawn, the fleet sailed into the harbor at Cadiz. They took every ship that laid at anchor, and all of the crews that were too slow or too foolish to escape, and then lashed all of those ships together, which made it easy for them to take all of the riches they found on board. But more importantly, to this mission at least, they took all of that which is required to outfit a navy. They took rope and tackle and tar and lumber and sail and any navigational instruments they might find. They did this so they could cripple the armada before it even got started, and they could use all of these goods to bolster the English navy. It was really a well-thought-out plan. Drake did falter in one of his orders, though. The queen had told him, specifically, that he was to burn any ship that he found in the harbor at Cadiz. And though Drake had all of these ships slashed together with plenty of tar and certainly plenty of fire, he failed to do so. Why? He exchanged the prisoners he had taken for gold, and the Duke of Medina Sidonia himself gifted Drake with a cask of wine and a basket of sweetmeats, and Drake left the harbor in a rush. Why? He left over 60 vessels in the harbor unharmed, if a bit lighter, in defiance of his direct royal orders. Why? Well, one possible answer is that Drake had taken some of those Spanish prisoners and had them questioned. One of these prisoners may have given up some sensitive information, perhaps even more valuable to Drake than burning the ships. It appears that he had learned that Spain's second most accomplished admiral, a man named Juan Martinez de Recalde, sailed with a squadron that was half the size of Drake's and was, at this very moment, anchored off Cape St. Vincent. 
it's also possible that this smaller fleet was accompanying the Spanish treasure flota, which was Drake's greatest lust in life. En route to get to the Cape, Drake encountered a fleet of tiny merchant vessels, really little more than fishermen's boats, and found on board what would actually wind up becoming perhaps the most valuable cargo that he would take this entire voyage. He found, bound together, bundles of barrel staves bound for Cadiz. I understand that this might not sound like much, but you have to understand that life on board a ship required many, many barrels filled with water. If you didn't have these iron barrel staves to hold the barrels together, you couldn't have water or wine, and your ships would be unable to sail, and they took time and money to produce, so perhaps the greatest delay that Drake affected this entire voyage was stealing these barrel staves. Still, though, barrel staves, while they were important, weren't exactly a rich prize. Drake needed a, a real haul, both to repay his investors and to line his own pockets, so... He chased after Rakald, who had sailed away from the Cape. He was headed towards Lisbon, but Drake believed he could catch him. Unfortunately, the winds weren't in his favor, and Rakald managed to beat him there. Lisbon was far too well defended a port for the English to take, so Drake turned his attentions elsewhere. He took what was called the Sagres Castle, which had once, strangely enough, been the home of Prince Henry the Navigator. This was a symbolic victory, but not a rich one. Still, one monk did record, quote, They committed their usual feasts and drunkenness, their diabolical rampages and obscenities. They stole everything they found and then set the place on fire, having first committed a thousand excesses and diabolical desecrations of the images of the saints like wicked heretics. End quote. Then, on June 1st, Sir Francis Drake's fortune changed once again for the better. He learned of a ship called the San Felipe, owned by Philip himself and carrying all of the goods from the Orient directly into Drake's clutches. It's said that the San Felipe was taken without a single shot being fired because her holds and her gun ports were too crammed with goods to fire any guns in her defense. On board, Drake found gold, he found silver, he found precious gems, ivory, silk, rich dyes, cinnamon, cloves, and pepper, all in all worth $32 million in modern money. With this haul, Drake was finally able to sail for home. It was around this time that Francis Drake enlisted perhaps one or maybe two men to write all of his letters and document all of his deeds. You see, Francis Drake needed better representation to both the Queen and the English people, and the results turn out to be ludicrous. You see, Drake was uneducated, he was poorly read, and he had really abysmal penmanship, and suddenly his correspondences were beautifully composed with allegory and reference to God, the Bible, and history. For example, he is reported to have said at Cadiz, when the wind turned to his favor, the wind commands me away. Yeah, no, he didn't say that. Francis Drake was a sailor and a pirate, and he knew ships and violence, not poetry. Similarly, at this raid on Cadiz, he is reported to have claimed that he, quote, singed the king of Spain's beard, end quote, which was not true. That was actually said by the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire in reference to his own beard rather than King Philip's. Now, this new eloquent correspondence may have actually helped Francis Drake, though, when he returned to London. He found himself out of favor with the Queen, at least in official record, and defending some of his decisions during the raid on Cadiz. 
However, Drake showered Elizabeth with gifts, and he still had her ear. He may have failed to burn all of the vessels that he had been ordered to, but he had really delayed the invasion, and that was Elizabeth's need. He also brought news of Philip's true plans. He wrote to Lord Walsingham, quote, I assure your honor, the like preparation was never heard of nor known. As the king of Spain hath and daily maketh to invade England, all possible preparations for defense are very expedient to be made. I dare not a most write into your honor of the great forces we hear the king of Spain hath in the straits. Prepare in England strongly, and most by sea. Stop him now, and stop him ever. Look well to the coast of Sussex. End quote. Drake begged again and again to be allowed another voyage, this time in force to go to Lisbon, where he could destroy the Armada before it even began sailing. The crown, however, decided not to grant it. Finances in England were once again tight, and Elizabeth hesitated to back any venture that would take English vessels away from English shores. Philip, too, though, had suffered setbacks. In addition to the raid on Cadiz, he had been forced to call off the treasure fleets for the year, fearing that they would be taken by English pirates. They stayed in port in the Americas. And then his plans were dealt a truly terrible blow. His close friend, the Admiral Santa Cruz, died. Philip was forced to name the Duke Medina Sidonia, that man who was a hero of the raid on Cadiz, who had gifted Francis Drake wine and sweetmeats, he was forced to name him Admiral of the Spanish Armada. Medina Sidonia was a morose man, especially about the state of the Spanish Navy. He surveyed the fleet, and he found it lacking. They didn't have enough guns. They didn't have enough soldiers that were trained well, and the ships themselves were even sometimes in poor condition. He was forced to smuggle in at least 100 cast-iron English cannon, something that the Spanish thought were so low quality they weren't even worth using, but he needed the guns, but still they weren't enough. The Spanish had little powder, they had less shot, and they had only a very few properly trained gunners. However, Philip refused to hear of these complaints. He believed that God was on his side. The Pope himself granted special indulgences for every Spaniard on the voyage, and when confronted with the possibility of bad weather, Philip said, quote, since it is all for his cause, God will grant us fair weather, end quote. As he lay in his sickbed and his admiral continued to bring complaints to him, his very last command to Medina Sidonia was, quote, Sail. Sail. The Spanish plan was simple. The Armada would sail into the Channel. They would break the English naval defense there, and they would hold a landing site. Then... Somewhere between 30 and 60,000 soldiers under the command of the Duke of Parma would sail from the Netherlands to England. They would sail upriver and take London in what they believed would be no more than two or three days. The sailors, though, in the Spanish fleet, well, they knew better. As the Spanish Armada was preparing to sail, one sailor wrote, quote, Things hang in the balance. Please, God, let the events be for his cause, and may he assist us as is so necessary. End quote. Another sailor, when he was speaking to a papal official, a papal nuncio, said to him, quote, The English, who have faster and handier ships than ours, and many more long-range guns, and who know their advantage just as well as we do, will never close with us at all, but stand aloof and knock us to pieces with their culverins without our being able to do them any serious hurt. 
When the nuncio asked him what the Spanish needed to win, the officer answered, a miracle. End quote. The English weren't entirely aware of the Spanish shortcomings, though. They thought that the fleet was a lot better defended than it really was. On the English side, the Queen's plan was to separate her navy, to guard uh, the western end of the Channel from Spain, and to guard the eastern end from the Netherlands. However, she acquiesced to her advisers. The Lord Admiral was now a man named Charles Howard of Effingham, and he was in command of the Queen's navy. His plan was to have Lords Winter and Hawkins await the Armada in the middle of the Channel, while the Lord Admiral Howard himself and Sir Francis Drake would wait at and near Plymouth. They would be in a fleet of sleek, fast, and heavily armed smaller vessels that would be able to chase and harry the Spanish. They were going to follow behind the Armada after it sailed into the Channel. The plan was to allow the Spanish Armada to sail until it nearly encountered the fleet of larger English galleons, and then the Lord Admiral and Drake would come up behind them, bite their heels, and then catch the Armada in the crossfire and demolish her. Now, the plans of both sides were interrupted by some inclement weather. Some of those famous channel storms blew in, and the fleets of both the Spanish and the English, well, their timetables and their charts were thrown off course, so they had to regroup and make some new plans as quickly as possible. However, the basic plan for Drake to follow behind still stood because Drake and his fleet were still at harbor. Legend has it that when Drake received word of the Spanish Armada entering the channel, he said... Time enough to finish the game and beat the Spanish after. Now this sounds like some of Drake's famous propaganda, but this might actually be something that he said. See, the tide was high in Plymouth Harbor at the time. It was too high for the fleet to leave, and he knew they would have to wait until sundown. However, once sundown came, the fleet did set sail, and they rushed after the Spanish Armada. When the Duke of Medina Sidonia awoke the next morning, it must have been something of a shock to him. He found the English fleet not before him as he had thought, but waiting behind. Their entire formation was planned to meet the English fleet waiting before them. However, that formation and the Armada itself must have been something of a fright as well. It was at least two miles in width. It was a virtual forest of mast and sail punctuated by these massive Spanish aft castles who towered over the smaller English vessels. All the same, Lord Howard ordered a single pinnace called Defiance forward to fire a single shot at the Spanish flagship. This was a gesture of formal challenge. Think of a knight pulling off his glove and slapping another man in challenge for a duel. This was that sort of move. The Spanish, they had their ships arrayed in four columns. Their heaviest ships were in the center, with their faster and smaller galleys along the sides. They made a tight crescent formation, all meant to face forward so they could surround the English fleet whenever they encountered it. However, somehow, these massive vessels had to turn around and change their entire formation because they were now facing a force that was coming from the opposite direction. Really, their formation was perfect. The Spanish were spectacular sailors. If the English had been waiting in front, they would have destroyed them immediately. However, they didn't account for what the English actually had planned. I'm going to quote historian Arthur Herman in his book, To Rule the Waves, How the British Navy Shaped the Modern World, which is really a pretty excellent read, especially for any nautical or military historians out there. It goes all the way from the very earliest days of the British Navy to all the way up until World War II. 
He writes about this battle, quote, The English rushed forward with gun ports open, and as many guns wheeled and lashed pointing forward as possible. This was no classic battle of broadsides. Each gun was aimed on its own, while the master gunner himself gave orders to the helm. Bow chasers fired first, then the guns on the leeward side, and, as the ship turned, then the guns in the stern as the boatswain shouted to his men aloft to lull sails and brought the ship to a halt. Then, as the ship turned back, the guns on the other broadside opened up as the ship completed its stately pirouette past its target, wreathed in smoke the revenge or bear or vanguard, then tacked back windward to reload. In this way, the English guns got off an average of a shot an hour, whereas the Spanish, keeping to their tight box formation, were sometimes lucky if their guns could fire back one shot a day. End quote. It was really, at the end of the day, an ineffectual battle on both sides. While the English had proved that they could fire many more shots, their tactics weren't doing a whole lot of damage to the Spanish fleet. They took out a few of the smaller vessels, but from the distances they were firing, they were unable to take out any of the massive Spanish warships. As night fell, though, Drake was given the order to light the lantern on his stern that would guide the way for the rest of the fleet. On the Spanish side, they faced disaster. While their ships were still nearly all floating... The Nuestra Señora de Rosario was rammed by another Spanish vessel in the night. The Rosario lost her bowsprit, her mizzenmast, and her mainyard. Then, in a separate event, another ship in the Armada carrying somewhere near 383 men and almost all of the gold meant to pay the soldiers suddenly exploded. It's unclear exactly what happened, but apparently something lit their entire powder magazine alight. In the chaos after this explosion, Francis Drake seized on an opportunity. He broke formation from the fleet, endangering all of those relying on his lantern, and he took the Rosario, along with the reported 55,000 golden ducats aboard, and he ordered the ship to be sailed home. Despite Francis Drake's knighthood, all of his titles and his lands, he still couldn't fight what he was at heart, a loathsome, no-good, West Country pirate. The next morning, when Lord Admiral Howard came on deck, he discovered that he had not in fact been following Sir Francis Drake's lantern, but one for the Armada. A fierce morning firefight ensued, the exact kind of thing that a good English navyman needed to get the blood pumping, but he managed to remove himself from the Spanish Armada. Francis Drake returned to the fleet and was called on board of the Lord Admiral's ship. There's no record of exactly what the Lord Admiral said to Francis Drake, but man, I wish there was, because I imagine that even the Spanish in the Armada, a mile or more away, could hear the curses of this old sea captain to Francis Drake. The Admiral went on to confiscate the 55,000 ducats and send it to London. The Admiral ordered that the English would continue dogging the Spanish fleet, and the fight on water continued the same way for the next day. On land, Elizabeth stood before her rallied troops, who were preparing to defend the city of London and the land of England against any invasion. She gave them this speech. My loving people, who have been persuaded by some that are careful for our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes, for fear of treachery, but, I assure you, I do not desire to live in distrust, my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. 
I have always so behaved myself that, under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and good will of my subjects, and therefore I am come amongst you, as you see, resolved, in the midst and heat of the battle, to live or die amongst you all, and to lay down for my God, and for my kingdom, and for my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust." I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which, rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge, and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already for your forwardness you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you and the word of a prince they shall be duly paid you End quote. imagine her surprise as well as the surprise of admiral medina sidonia when none of those troop ships arrived perhaps elizabeth wasn't so surprised after all the troops had never even left port the sea beggars had sailed south swooped in and halted any thought of parmas of setting sail it was here that the spanish armada knew they were lost. On the third day, short on food, shot, powder, and soldiers, the English finally closed ranks and opened fire. Finally, the English had found their mark at 300 yards, which would become the naval policy for firefights for centuries. They sank dozens of Spanish vessels, but still the armada stood in tight formation. The English captains, they began to worry. Despite their superior battle skills, how could they defeat that armada? So, after nightfall, eight smaller English vessels sailed silently forward toward the armada. Their guns were charged fully to the muzzles. Their decks and their holds were filled with pitch, tar, and hemp, anything that would burn. The Spanish saw these ships primed to explode and burn any vessel nearby, and they all managed to escape unharmed. But in this attempt to set the Spanish Armada alight, it broke their formation. And finally, the English were able to attack. The English closed in. This was the beginning of the first great naval engagement in modern history. A total of 200 ships fired bravely, even recklessly, in a fight for their lives, for their homes, and for their countries. The Spanish never backed down. Each of the ships fired until they were out of powder and shot, and then they would sail towards the English vessels, grapple that ship, and do hand-to-hand -hand combat with the men on board, either dying or taking the ship. But still, the Spanish were outmatched. The English ships were too well-armed and too fast. The air in the English Channel was filled with smoke, the deafening sound of cannon, and in the interim between shots, the screams of the dying. Any vessel worth her salt was coated in splinter and tattered sail, amidst the gore of men without arms and legs and heads. The seas were covered in a sheen of dead bodies, broken ships, and blood. A storm arose, bringing in clouds and fog to mingle with the smoke from the battle, and in that moment the Spanish Armada set sail and fled. Perhaps Philip was right, in part, he said that God would send them fair weather, and when the Spanish Armada was nearly lost and completely destroyed, a storm came in and saved them. 
Their odyssey was not over, and the trip back to Spain was going to be extremely difficult for these men, but many still made it home, more than would have had that storm not blown in. The English didn't believe that this was the end of the invasion. However, it was. The Spanish had fled. There were no troops coming from the Netherlands. The English had won the day. Now, this undeclared war between Spain and England, though, it would continue. The Eighty Years' War, the conflict for Dutch independence, that would continue too. And the hatred between Catholics and Protestants in Europe would continue for centuries. Queen Elizabeth, King Philip, and Francis Drake would continue their dance. But this is a suitable place to stop. The Armada's defeat marked a turning point in the world. It showed the world that Spain was not all-powerful, and it opened up the ambitions of all of the colonial powers in Europe. It was by no means the end of the Spanish Empire, but it marked the beginning of their decline, and it marked the dawn of the British Empire, and the colossal power struggles that would continue for centuries, and really, we're still fighting to this modern day. This Spanish Armada's defeat showed the world that the future would not be won by soldiers on land or on horseback. It would be won by sailors on the back of ships. Elizabeth would continue her rule for years and rule over some of the most prosperous times in English history. Elizabethan England would bring us an English renaissance. It would bring us Shakespeare and the birth of the modern English language. It would see a shift in English culture towards a more free, open, and democratic society. Sir Francis Drake was far from done. He continued to sail, and his legend continued to grow. He sailed again and again back to Spain, into the Caribbean, never ending Drake's war, his personal conflict with the Spanish. But he passed away at Porto Bello, at the end of a difficult voyage of raiding and piracy, at 4 a.m., January 28th, 1596. And with him, we're going to leave the Elizabethan age behind. The reason we've spent so much time on this era, the Elizabethan period, and Francis Drake in particular, is because these conflicts are really what set the stage for the colonial conflicts in the Caribbean. And Francis Drake, more than anyone else, showed the world that a single man with a sleek, small, fast ship filled with guns and manned by a loyal crew of people with insufficient morals would be able to challenge the empires of the old world and make themselves rich and powerful men. His was really the story that all pirates in the years to come would see and believe that they could make a reality. He was the goal that men such as Henry Avery and Edward Teach were... Well, that's what they wanted to be. They wanted to be Francis Drake, a man who was a patriot fighting for his country and using less than scrupulous means to achieve it. They also wanted to fill their pockets, which was something that Francis Drake did extremely well. In the end, Francis Drake stole in modern dollars $115 million worth of Spanish loot. This makes him, according to Forbes magazine, the second most successful pirate in history. Next time, we're going to take a jump forward. The politics of Europe are going to go through a lot of upheavals, but most of that is relatively unimportant. We'll talk about the big stuff, but we're going to start focusing on another of the most successful pirates in history. 
a man who graces the front of many bottles of cheap rum, Captain Henry Morgan. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. This episode took a long time, and it's longer than usual, but we covered a lot of time. I wanted to move on to the next chapter in our story. And that next chapter is going to focus much more on the Caribbean and the Americas. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you're enjoying the podcast, I think you might really enjoy checking them out. So why not go on over to brillig.com.au, that's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over to the website? That's going to be piratehistorypodcast.com, where we've got all sorts of supplemental information. We've got a synopsis, we've got images and maps that might help you find your way around, as well as links to all of our sources that have been used in this episode. Those sources also have links next to them that will send you to the relevant search results on abebooks.com. Abebooks is a service that puts rare and used book dealers in touch with people all over the world. It's a place where you can find cheap copies of used books and copies of books that are almost impossible to find anywhere else. I use them almost entirely for all of my research materials. If you guys are interested in learning more about anything we've talked about this week, all of our sources are up there, and if you go ahead and use that link, Abebooks is kind enough to throw me a couple of bucks, so I really appreciate that. I'd also like to thank everybody that has left a rating or a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, we're now on Google Play Music, or any of our other services. That really helps get the podcast noticed, and I really appreciate it. Most of all, though, everybody, thank you for listening. Tonight